invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 6 as we journey through the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 6 is our destination. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This is the very word of the living God. On a sultry day in July of the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stotternheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly, there was a shower and then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning rived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of the saints. He who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the popes with Antichrist. For this young man was Martin Luther. That's the opening paragraphs of Roland Bainton's famous biography of Martin Luther entitled, Here I Stand. I read it when I was in college, and it may have been the first real Christian biography or biography of a Christian that I had ever read that was historical and inspirational to me. And I've probably recommended that biography to college students 
more times than I could count. Bainton was a Roman Catholic, but he captured the life and passion of Martin Luther very well. And it was that that got me to understand a lot more of the history of a period of time called the Reformation. I was a history major in college, and I understood that there was some socio-political movement called the Reformation, but my church growing up didn't teach me anything about our own spiritual heritage in some way being connected to this man, Martin Luther, and the Reformation. And I tell you about this today, one, to recommend Roland Bainton's wonderful biography, Here I Stand, one more time. I've read probably eight Martin Luther biographies, and it still remains my favorite one. It's accessible, it's interesting, you would like it. And it's only like six bucks on Kindle. So, maybe seven, maybe eight. Martin Luther's worth eight bucks. It's interesting to think about that for me personally because I actually have a connection to Martin Luther. I was baptized in South Dakota as a Lutheran baby against my will. I don't remember it. I was just told that. And I have since renounced, like Luther, renounced the Pope. I have renounced my Lutheran baptism because getting a baby wet doesn't mean it's baptized. So, it's a different sermon. The reason I want to bring Martin Luther to your attention is what became the cry of the Reformation is the centrality of faith. You all understand that. Sola fide, they said. It's faith alone, through Christ alone, that salvation is found. Salvation is not by works, but by faith. And the recovery of that doctrine, of the centrality of faith, is the hallmark of Reformation theology. Here in Mark chapter 6, we find an exposition of the opposite of faith. If faith is that most essential part, if to receive Christ savingly, to know God's mercy, to be a recipient of of grace is dependent on an expression of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the most dangerous place you could find yourself is with the opposite of faith. This text calls it unbelief. And what I'd like to do this morning is try to represent why Mark put this here and help you understand that it's important for us to think about unbelief, to be able to diagnose it, to be able to understand it, to be able to apprehend why our own hearts ever were unbelieving and and when our own hearts subtly shift towards lacking faith. I think understanding unbelief can help us in our efforts to evangelize the campuses. Our efforts to understand unbelief will help us in our battle against sin. Our efforts to understand unbelief will help us as we pray for lost people. Our effort to understand unbelief will help us worship God 
more abundantly and with greater gratitude because when we diagnose unbelief, we remember such were some of you. If faith is that central tenant of the Reformation, if faith is the way that we access God through the cross of Jesus Christ, then unbelief is the opposite of faith. It's unbelief that needs to be understood because unbelief is that one thing that keeps us out of heaven, that keeps us away from Christ, that makes us so self-focused and so lost in our own desires and lusts and sin. Unbelief is the most dangerous thing in the world. After Luther was converted from his monkish ways, he preached sola fide, he preached faith alone. And in a series of lectures on Hosea 2.13, which says, I'll punish her for the days she burned incense to the balls. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but she me forgot, declares the Lord. Luther, in commenting on that verse, one of worshiping idols instead of worshiping the one true God, spoke about the nature of unbelief. And this is what he said. Although God hates sins, still he is more forgiving toward all other sins than he is toward the contempt of his son. That is, he cannot bear to have his mercy despised. Therefore, it is easy to judge what is in store for the papal crowd, which condemns the doctrine of faith as the most noxious heresy and persuades people to look to the protection of merits or works. In 1563, he said that God will forgive all but unbelief. If we're to understand forgiveness, if we're to understand the gospel, and if we're to prize the centrality of faith, then we need to understand unbelief. And that's exactly where Mark has brought us to. So I think the best way to understand this little paragraph, and it's a lesson that will extend past this opening section all the way into the story about Herod and John the Baptist that follows chapter 6. Chapter 6 really does become a, a multifaceted look at unbelief, but the setup is what I want to look at today, verses 1 through 6. And I think the best way to look through those verses is in three simple parts. We can really analyze the anatomy of unbelief by looking at its context, verses 1 and 2, its nature in verses 3 and 4, and the consequences of unbelief in verses 5 and 6. Let's start with the context of unbelief in verses 1 and 2. Look at those opening words. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. This in Mark's rapid flow connects us with everything we've learned before in the Gospel of Mark, especially the section we looked at last time we were together. You'll remember the miraculous encounter that two persons of very different backgrounds had with Jesus in Mark chapter 5. Three, actually. The demoniac, uh, which was related to the, the disciples being 
comforted by Jesus and then terrified by Jesus as he calmed the storm. And then the demoniac, who was full of legions of demons, fell down at Jesus' feet, and Jesus changed him from the inside out, making him an altogether new creation, clothed in his right mind, seated at Jesus' feet, and then commissioned to be a a missionary to the Decapolis. Uh, These are encounters where Jesus is putting faith on display. Remember what he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? It was a lack of faith he identified and associated with their fear in the storm. And then as the man fell down before Jesus and Jesus uh, delivered him from his demon possession, he expressed faith in Jesus by pleading to let Jesus come along with him. But then he showed faith in Jesus by being obedient to Jesus as he sent him, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And in that sentence, we found the testimony of every faithful Christian uh, to be able to speak of what the Lord has done for us and to go and tell others how merciful he's been to us. And then as Jesus presses through the crowd after returning from the other side of the lake, the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, he's back on the Galilean shore uh, among the Jewish people and the crowds are swelling because of the miraculous work that Jesus has done. His power is on display and so uh, the crowds are surging. Uh, Jesus has almost been crushed in an earlier chapter uh, by his uh, own popularity and the people pressing to see him, to touch him, to speak with him, to hear him, to eat from the miraculous food that he's going to provide, to receive these healings and to uh, be a part of of this massive crowd. And and it's in this crowd that he is found by Jairus, that ruler of the synagogue, someone who would have been important in Jewish society, someone who would have been a part of that opposition party, that uh, was upset about Jesus' popularity, that was trying to find ways to undermine Jesus. But this man, in his desperation, because of his love for his little daughter, comes and finds Jesus and tells Jesus, my daughter's on her deathbed, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And Jesus assents and goes with this guy. And as they're making their way back to Jairus' house, uh, they're uh, interrupted by another daughter, a daughter who is the opposite of that man, a daughter who is part of the ostracized, part of the rejected the lowest parts of society because of her sickness, her, her complex gynecological issue called an issue of blood, according to the text. Uh, this woman, because of Jewish law, could have no part of Jewish society or Jewish worship. And she, unlike the man who threw himself in front of Jesus, Jairus, Uh, She sneaks up behind Jesus in this crowd, maybe even concealing her appearance so people wouldn't judge her and throw her out of the crowd. She wasn't supposed to be in a place like that. And her expression of faith was, if I could just touch his cloak, I will be healed. And sure enough, she touched him and she was healed. And Jesus insists to make this a public healing She was content to to be healed and then run away, but he wanted her to know more of his personal 
ministry and touch and care. And so he speaks to her so graciously and and gently. And he identifies for her and for everyone watching uh, that it wasn't the superstitious touch of his robe that healed her, but instead this central reality of faith. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And that's when Jairus receives that bad news and uh, the insensitive gentlemen come to him and say, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. And Jesus, again, asserting the centrality of faith, looks at this devastated man. You can imagine his face having received that news. And Jesus tenderly tells him, don't be afraid, only believe. And then Jesus leads the man to his own house and in front of Peter and James and John, this man and his wife, he speaks gently to this child, Talitha Kum, and tells this little girl to wake up and then somebody says, somebody make her a Markin sandwich. And it's such a seminary joke, no one laughed at it. But... All of it, everything that's gone before here in this passage is pointing at the centrality of belief. It's showing the power of faith. It's showing that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. It's, it's summarizing the entire message of uh, their father Abraham. He wasn't somebody who earned his way into the kingdom of God. He was a worshiper of the moon. And it was simply a response to the word of God that brought Abraham into God's family and as a recipient of God's promise. And and that's where the people of Israel came from. They came from faith. And so Jesus isn't teaching them something new. He's showing them that it's always been about believing. It's always been about apprehending and taking hold of God, responding to his word. That's what faith is. It's trust. It's belief. It's an assurance that God is right and that God is able and that God is God. And so Jesus is preaching that same message that the people of Israel were founded on to this people And it's that context that unbelief begins to be featured. It's as if Mark has has displayed one side of the portrait, and now he wants to show the reverse image. He wants to flip it around so that you'd see what it looks like. If if the disciples, they're being confronted in their fear is because they need more faith. If the demoniac could be delivered by the power of God over the the supernatural forces of evil through uh, the power of faith, and and go and obey the Lord and become his emissary if this woman could be healed and made clean and acceptable to her society and delivered from her suffering because of her faith, if this daughter could be raised to life because of the faith of her father, all these positive examples of faith and the power of faith and how faith connects us with God's son, now we come to another scene. And the context of it is not a context of faith, but a context of unbelief. What else do we see in these opening verses about this this context? Well, to understand the story just a little bit, Jesus is going to his hometown, a place called Nazareth in Galilee. 
We don't know if he was in Capernaum in the prior scene. It's unclear from the Gospels. It would have been around Capernaum. Uh, That's Jesus' home base, you could say. It's where his ministry was was, uh, founded. It's it's the homes he stayed in during his northern Galilean ministry. Uh, Capernaum and environs, the, the, the surrounding areas is where he was. Now, Jesus leaves there in verse 1 and goes to his hometown. Jesus goes to his place where he grew up. You understand the, the somewhat arduous journey that Mary and Joseph went on for uh, the birth of Jesus. After all that happened, Bethlehem and then down to Egypt and then back up, they returned not to their ancestral home, which was you know, where their forefathers were, were from, that's Bethlehem. They returned to the place where they lived and worked and where they would raise their kids, and that place is Nazareth. It's in the hills of Galilee, so it's away from the coast, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Remember, when we do Israel geography, we go puddle, line, puddle. That's Israel, puddle, line, puddle. It's real easy. You don't even need that map in the back of your Bible, puddle, line, puddle. That's all there is to it. We're up here at the, at the top puddle. And we've moved away from the coast. We crossed the water to go save the demoniac. We came back across the water. We're in those little towns around Capernaum. Uh, Jesus is getting swamped by the crowd. And then he goes and and takes a trip uh, somewhat south, mostly west, to the hills of Galilee, away from the lake, away from the sea, uh, a familiar place where he would have grown up. This is his hometown, Galilee. Archaeologists like Indiana Jones say that there was 200 to 1,600 people in those days that would have inhabited Galilee. And so this is a small town, a kind of place where everybody knew everybody. I mean, all the kids at that Galilee High School would make the basketball team and the football team. It's that kind of a place. It's a small town place. And... As Jesus makes his way there with his disciples, this is uh, likely his second trip back. It's unclear whether this is the same story that Matthew tells where Jesus goes home. Uh, We don't know if this was the final trip. I I lean towards this being a different trip, but that's just just one man's opinion. But Jesus had, had undoubtedly returned to his home a number of times, but this seems to be potentially his second trip home. The first trip home did not go well. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. And so this seems to be his his final trip home. And so I'm sure that the disciples were wondering how this would go. And whether it's conflated with the other trip or not doesn't really matter to the significance of the story. But Jesus is there, and the tradition would have been that on the Sabbath day, a visiting teacher would have been invited to speak uh, to the gathered congregation. And even more so, it would have been expected that Jesus, with his surging popularity, would have been welcomed into the the, the home pulpit to teach. And in Matthew's version of the story, which again I think was an earlier account, uh, Jesus preaches from the scroll of Isaiah from chapter 61 and basically tells them that he's there to fulfill it. And this, we don't know exactly what he taught, whether it was that passage in Isaiah or another passage. Jesus spoke to the people he preached. 
we know that this is Jesus' modus operandi. That's Latin for the stuff he always does. Uh, Jesus was a teacher. He was a preacher. Uh, Mark's already said that three times in the gospel, that Jesus was teaching the kingdom of God. He was preaching about the kingdom of God. And so here's another example of Jesus' regular habit of, of teaching, and this in a formal setting. This is in their service in the synagogue. And the people's reaction to it is shown to us in verses, uh, verse number two. It says, and many who heard him were amazed. They were amazed. That amazement, that marvel, that appreciation, the shock of, of Jesus' teaching happens in the context of, well, unbelief. I hope you would recognize in this passage, since you've already seen that they lack faith in verse 6, that someone can be quite impressed with preaching or even with Jesus himself and still be an unbeliever. I mean, that's still the case today. There's lots of people that go to church that can appreciate a good sermon and, and pat them on the back and say, good, good sermon, preacher, but not have any real faith. You can be impressed and still be an unbeliever. You can be part of the crowd and still be left out of heaven. You can be interested. You can even be amazed. But unless you believe, you're not a follower of Jesus. And that's because the, the ultimate context of unbelief in this little paragraph in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, is the same context we live in today. We live in a world that has been cursed by God. And we've inherited from our forefather Adam a latent unbelief. And it was in the garden that unbelief first became the the chief sin and the, the temptation that was succumbed to, right? When the tempter said to Eve, did God really say that? It was an opportunity to question God, a, a, an opportunity to not believe God's word. And so the context of all unbelief is the, the fallen world, the cursed world. Every single one of us, by nature and by choice, is an unbeliever. And unbelief is the air in which we breathe. It doesn't matter that this is the, 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 the you know, scientific age or a post-enlightenment day. or you know, it, it doesn't matter because throughout all of human history, from every age to every age, unbelief is the air in which we breathe. It is the nature of all of us and the reason we're, we're analyzing this unbelief this morning is, is I want us not just to marvel at the teaching of Jesus and be amazed at his teaching because any unbeliever can do that. I would like us to join Jesus as he moves towards his amazement, amazement at unbelief. We need to marvel at unbelief, not because it's uncommon, but because it's so opposed to the promotion and glory of Jesus Christ. I think we can be outraged at unbelief, not because it's not everywhere, 
It's everywhere. But to come to the understanding that, friend, if you're not a Christian, you are an unbeliever. I'm not trying to say something that's harsh or judgmental to you, but the nature of being a Christian is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe his power to do anything, to believe in his wisdom to know everything, and to believe that when he calls us to follow him, our response of faith is to obey. That's what it means to be a disciple, someone who follows Jesus, someone who believes and obeys the Lord. So friend, if you're not a Christian, you're an unbeliever. You have not put your faith in Jesus. You don't believe in his power. You don't accept his authority. You object to his claims. And it's not okay to say, well, there's things I admire about Jesus. There's things that impress me about Jesus. There's things that I, I really appreciate about Jesus. Some of the, the stuff in, in the Bible that, you know, that I agree with, I, I like that about Jesus. Friend, that's not belief. Belief requires your wholehearted assent to the claims and call of Jesus. If you don't accept his authority, you object to his claims. And he claimed to be God. And that's something that if you're not a Christian, you reject. Because if Jesus is God, he has absolute authority over your life. And he calls you to believe in him. I try not to be on Twitter too much, the tweets. But there's some entertainment value there sometimes. There's more on like the fail accounts on Instagram, more entertainment there with the skateboard crashes. It's a different kind of entertainment on the Twitter. It's an intellectual entertainment. Or maybe it's just a dumb, inter- anyway, on the Twitter. And someone on the, t- oh, this wasn't even on Twitter. This story's all messed up. This is, on, this is on Volo's thing. What is it called? He's doing an Instagram thing the other day. And I got on it mostly to make fun of him. And he's, he's doing something, talking to people. He's out of town on their retreat right now, so I'm allowed to tell this story. Um, and we like to send each other this emoji. I don't know what it means, but I send it to him right now. So he's like saying something to the people, and I send him. And there's people talking on the thing. And I think he's preaching the gospel to people. And, and this, this lady says, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus tell us to believe in him. We should believe in ourselves. We should believe in each other. We should believe in the power of love. She does this little thing in there. And I couldn't believe that she said that. And so I, I, don't, you know, I don't talk to people on the internet very often. I try not to, but I just couldn't help myself in that case. And I just you know, shot her one of a hundred verses you could send her. You, know, you believe in God, believe also in me. Who said that? Jesus. Jesus calls us to believe in him. But the context of a fallen world means that all of us, by default, are unbelievers. The words and wisdom of Jesus have no influence on our thinking. That's what it means to be an unbeliever. And just because you think Jesus is interesting or you're interested in his compassionate moments or you're interested in uh, some of his teaching does not make you a believer. A believer 
accepts Jesus entirely. And as this chapter chronicles the rejection and offense of God's true prophets, as John the Baptist gets his head cut off, we start to see how serious unbelief is. But the context is is Mark teaching us about faith, and then it's also this fallen world in which we live where unbelief is everywhere. And just because there's something about Jesus that you think is, is acceptable to you, but there's other things about Jesus that you're not that interested in, you need to understand that's not true faith. That's not genuine belief. So what is it? Well, let's look at the nature of unbelief. And it's on display here, I think, in a profound way in verses 3 and 4. They ask a series of rhetorical questions. The first one, the first two are then followed by, depending on how you count them, I think it's five questions in Greek, maybe it's six, but there's just a pile of rhetorical questions that are given by the people. Remember, they had just spoken of their amazement, a common word in the Gospels. It means to be extraordinarily impressed. It means to wonder, to be amazed, to be astonished, Uh, sometimes to be surprised, to marvel at, to be utterly astounded by. It's truly a wonder, something spectacular, something awesome. It's true amazement. And that amazement at his teaching is followed by this analysis. Where did this man get these things? These things. It's a big, broad word in Greek. It's just like, that stuff. where's this stuff coming from? So they could be saying, who's this guy think he is, right at the outset. But I don't think it's, it's negative. I don't think their amazement is negative. I think there's a, a genuine interest. I think that there's, a, there's an impressive way about his teaching. Throughout the Gospels, that's how people heard Jesus. They thought, nobody talks like this. Nobody has this kind of authority, certainty, power. His preaching was amazing. And so that, that I think their first question is a genuine one, which is, where did this guy come up with this stuff? And then they ask, after that general question, what's this wisdom Sophia that has been given him, that he even does miracles. And so they're impressed by two things. The first is, well, I mean, the big category is this stuff. Like, where's he getting this stuff? But they break it down into two things that they really wonder about. The first one is his wisdom. This is the beautiful divine truth. For a Hebrew crowd to extol the wisdom of Jesus was to see in Jesus Solomonic kind of power. To see a a Davidic kind of devotion. To say this level of wisdom was to take so much of what the Old Testament taught and say this guy has got it. They saw in Jesus not just this powerful intellect which we might use a word like that when we think about wisdom. But what they saw in Jesus is truth from God. Truth that was appropriated. Truth that was allocated. Truth that was given from God to man to understand how this world works. That's what biblical wisdom is about. 
And so they say, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? They, they realize that, that there's a source of wisdom represented in the teaching of Jesus. And they associate his teaching with his wonder-working power, his miraculous might, his authority over creation, over the demonic. This is all the words that they'd heard about Jesus. He does a little bit of healing, as you see later in this passage. And so when they marvel at Jesus, they marvel at his wisdom and his teaching, and they marvel at his miraculous power. And I want you to see that the nature of unbelief Right at the outset, if the context of unbelief is a fallen world, that all of us are unbelievers, the nature of unbelief is how stubborn it is. It's so stubborn. I've had conversations with some of you where you said, if I could just get my friend to come to church, if I could just get him to come and, and listen to J-Mac, they would get it. I like that. Bring him. I hope they come. I want them to come. But don't be fooled that sitting under a good, powerful sermon will automatically overcome unbelief. I mean, these people knew Jesus from his infancy. They never saw him do one thing wrong. He was the best kid in school. They knew of his righteousness. And now grown Jesus is gaining acclaim far beyond their little rural spot. And they see and hear his wisdom. And they even affirm that he's doing miraculous things. But the nature of unbelief is incredibly stubborn. Because as soon as they start to recognize what's going on here, apparently this guy's wisdom is out of this world. This guy's power is unparalleled. Verse 3 says, wait a minute. Record scratch. Urch. Pull over the car. Isn't this the carpenter? Now, what they're not saying for those intellectual students here who do not know the business end of the shovel and are going to work in, in the white-collar world, they're not saying blue-collar bad. That's not how Jewish people thought. In fact, all rabbis had other skills. They were craftsmen or something. And so it wasn't that they were saying, well, Jesus, he's just a worker guy. What they're saying is that they know him. They're familiar with him. He's a carpenter. It's not belittling that he's a carpenter. I don't think that's the angle that they're taking. They're, they're talking about their familiarity with Jesus. He grew up there. They know him. In Matthew's version or his account of this, it says when he, Jesus was at Nazareth that other time, it says, isn't this the carpenter's son? This passage doesn't say that. 
And you could do some work here and, and know that the word carpenter, we mean that technically like someone who swings a hammer at lumber. Uh, their word carpenter, technia, was like, uh, it was all kinds of trades. You could be a stonemason, be a shipbuilder. So we don't know if Jesus really did just build tables. Um, and if he did, he actually built them. He didn't just go table. But <laughs> we know that we know that he you know, had this skill and this ability and this trade, whatever it was, kind of a broad application. He was a maker, he was a builder, he was a craftsman. And what they're saying about him is that they know this guy. And he may be talking about the, I mean, the theme of his preaching was the ushering in of the kingdom of God, the fulfillment of all messianic expectations. I mean, that's what he's talking about. That's what he always preached about. And when people heard him, the, the idea was he's saying that he's ushering this in, that, that this is the time of the Messiah. I mean, that's what people were talking about. And it did not compute, and they could not comprehend that this kid that they grew up with, who had a skill that they understood could be the one who was promised. Isn't this the carpenter? And then isn't this Mary's son? Again, it's not Joseph and Mary's son. In fact, a Hebrew boy should be known by his father's name uh, even after his father has, has passed away. So most people who read this passage read some scorn, a little bit of uh, the rumors about Jesus' origin, uh, him being a bastard son. Maybe that's why they say, isn't this Mary's son? Just to bring it back down to earth a little bit. And then the list, we, you see this several times in the scriptures, the list of Jesus' brothers, always in this order, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters here with us. With us, uh, some people think that means that his sisters had married, you know, the, the people in the community, which makes a lot of sense. And so they know this guy. And their trouble with Jesus shows us the nature of unbelief being incredibly stubborn because our hearts are so averse to going God's way that if we have a problem with something that God says, that thing gets amplified so high. You've seen this in your evangelistic encounters with unbelievers who are hung up on something so weird. You know, it's like they're, they're all about carbon dating or something. Have you had that conversation? That it's like, well, you know, I would totally be a Christian. You know, I'd, I'd put my crack pipe away and stop sleeping with my girlfriend. If and only if the carbon dating. You know, I don't know if you know about carbon dating, but let me get this Wikipedia thing going here. Let me talk about some carbon dating. You know how old that rock is? You know how old this thing is, the splinter over here? You know how old this amber fossil thing is? Science, it's your fault, not mine. And they'll do this kind of you know, thing. This is my hang-up. Or maybe it's a moral thing or an emotional thing. You know, well, I just can't handle what the, what the Bible says about gays. Like, I'm out. So whatever it is, whatever the hang-up is, carbon dating, the Bible says about gays, uh, I don't know, pick it. Those things 
are usually just an example of how stubborn unbelief is. Because unbelief can be partially intellectual. It could be volitional, having to do with the will. It could be emotional. But whatever it is, it's so stubborn that it cannot get over the obstacle that it presents to itself. Because unbelief has its authority, self. So whatever it is that you picked up on, whatever it is that's keeping you back from believing, I bet that the unbeliever has elevated that to such a degree that that becomes the issue rather than submitting to the wisdom and power of Jesus that has already been acknowledged. I can't, I mean, this, he's, it's a carpenter. It's Mary's son, you know what I'm talking about. It's the siblings, they're here. And their entire posture towards Jesus is summarized at the end of verse three. And they took offense at him. Offended by Jesus. You see, this shows us just what a monster unbelief is. How stubborn it is, how monstrous it is, because what they're taking exception to is Jesus' ordinariness. And so they say, he's too much like us. In fact, I heard that there's a blight of sin in his mama's life. And instead of realizing the outworking of the fall in their own lives, instead of shuddering at the great power of God on display before them in the promised one, in their presence from their own town, instead of marveling at his holiness, unbelief comes because they have evil hearts. It isn't ultimately their stubbornness or their intellectual rigor or uh, that they're calling God, you know, that he's not giving them enough evidence. They're saying, God, you're lying because I can't have a Messiah from my town. I can't have a Messiah this ordinary. And that's because unbelief comes from an evil heart. 1 John 5, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. And so the problem that unbelievers have with faith is that it asks them to abandon their own authority and accept God's word as their authority. And to do that, they would have to submit to being wrong and God being right. Not only that, they're well aware of what believing would entail. Because if you believe in Jesus, well, then you're going to have to follow him. And lots is going to have to change. And it's just too much. Unbelief comes from an evil heart. John 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness because They believe not on me. The original sin is unbelief. Belief requires something. That's what the the story of Herod is going to show us. He was so entertained by the preaching of John the Baptist until it challenged his sinful lifestyle. Hebrews 3.19 says it so clearly. The reason that generation couldn't enter the promised land is because of unbelief. 
That's what we're up against. That's the nature of unbelief. It takes offense at who God is and takes our own intellect, our own will as the authority rather than God. J.C. Ryle says it this way, unbelief is one of the commonest spiritual diseases in these latter days. It meets us at every turn and in every company. Like the Egyptian plague of frogs, it makes its way into every family and home, and there seems no keeping it out. Among high and low and rich and poor, in town and in country, in universities and manufacturing towns, in castles and in cottages, you will continually find some form of unbelief. It is no longer a pestilence that walketh in darkness, but a destruction that wasteth at noonday. It is even thought clever and intellectual, the mark of a thoughtful mind. Society seems leavened with it. I'm telling you, the problem isn't carbon dating. The problem isn't that you haven't talked to somebody smart enough or nobody's convinced you yet or tackled your objections to Christianity. And I'm not trying to be dismissive. I think you can tackle objections to Christianity, and you should. But what I'm trying to show you in this little town setting, that the parallel to today is that the Bible diagnoses unbelief as the failure to take God at his word. And it's most often a moral problem, not an intellectual one. So often in counseling a person who is refusing to follow Jesus in obedience, there's usually some kind of secret sin that they're hanging on to that they know they would have to let go of, they would have to divulge, they would have to repent of and turn from something the Bible forbids, something that their own consciences used to testify against. And and if this is anyone in this room, you're in so much danger because every sin can so easily be overcome and forgiven by Jesus But this sin of unbelief is an obstacle from ever receiving that grace of God. Because you can repent of being a murderer and you can repent of lust and you can repent of all your stealing, but to repent of unbelief requires everything to change. Because now you've got to follow Jesus and admit that he's right. Or you can just keep being offended by him, offended by his claims, offended by his teaching, offended by his requirements, and perfectly happy inside your own head. But that will lead to consequences, verse 4 through 6. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. It's why I can never go preach in Albuquerque. He brings this proverb in Matthew's account. He talks about Elijah and Elisha and gives examples from from the Old Testament. But I think you understand what he's saying. If any place should know Jesus, his righteousness, his wisdom, 
his calling. It should be his hometown people, but it's not. And verse 5 says something very interesting, doesn't it? He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. What does that mean? Well, it's not that Jesus had an inability. There is no lacking in God's sovereign power. The Lord is sovereign and powerful and nothing renders him impotent. Not Satan not even unbelief, but a refusal to believe in him deprives you of the blessing that is yours if you were welcomed into his presence with favor and grace. That's what that means. It's not that Jesus is unable to help you. It's that you're unwilling to be helped. It's that unbelief has been an obstacle for you and the consequences of your unbelief are shown in verse 5 and 6. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed at their lack of faith. The same word that describes the response that they had to his teaching, marveling at it, Jesus is described as being extraordinarily impressed, wondered, marveled, amazed, impressed, surprised, awestruck, utterly astounded by their unbelief. They couldn't handle a human savior. They couldn't handle a hometown Messiah. And so the consequences of their rejection is that he doesn't come home anymore. This is the last time we find Jesus in Nazareth. This is the last time that Jesus of Nazareth comes around anymore. And they didn't get to see his power, his compassion, his love. They wanted no part of it. And that's why unbelief is such a monster. It's why it's so astounding. And it's why we need to lift up on Reformation Day and every day the centrality of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the one thing keeping you from experiencing the glorious power and wisdom of Jesus in its fullest sense is unbelief, an unwillingness to trust him? I urge you, friend, give your life to Jesus today and watch him transform you from an unbeliever to someone who has faith in the power and authority and claims of Jesus and follow him for the rest of your life. Do it before it's too late. The consequences couldn't be more serious. Father, thank you for the centrality of faith. Thank you for the the sober reminder of the danger of unbelief. Father, for those here who are aware of their evil and unbelieving heart. I pray that there is no sin that they 
cherish, that we'd not be willing to pluck out, to walk away from, to repent of, to give to you, to trust you by faith, to heal and to cleanse and to free them. Father, thank you that you, in your mercy, can transform unbelievers into followers. And I pray that you would do that even today. Expose the evil of unbelief and expose the glorious mercy of Jesus. And may hearts and minds submit to him today by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.